Hello, hello. Hello. Hey, looks like we okay. in there. This is, so the update did fix it. Okay. Good, good. How you doing today? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing well, man. I'm good. I guess I probably should have changed the settings um, to uh, Bluetooth headset. Maybe that would have improved sound quality so it doesn't sound so echoey or whatever, but we in there, man. Here we are. Yes. All right. So welcome to the Three Ball Podcast, everybody. Today, we have on the wonderful Mr. Senator Scott. So if you would like to tell the audience some stuff about you, you can go ahead and do that. Wow. Wonderful might be... uh, well, no, I'm going to receive that, man. I appreciate it. Wonderful. It's great. Um, my name is Senator Scott. I've had the pleasure of teaching amazing young people like Galt um, for 15 years. I'm going into my 15th year of teaching. I'm from Atlanta, Georgia. Um, taught private school um, from across the state of Georgia, both in faith-based schools as well as uh, non-faith-based schools, both, uh, again, in Georgia, in North Carolina, and even in Mexico. Um, so I've been doing this for a while um, as an educator. I also um, am a political science major and history buff. Uh, I love hip hop. Um, I love the Bible. <laughs> it's just, I guess those are some, it's just some things that I think will be apparent when people hear me talk. But yeah, in, in short, man, I'm just, I'm just a guy that loves, loves young people, loves education, loves knowledge, and has a desire to pass that on with other people. Yes. Well, you forgot the most important part. Oh, you tell me. <laughs> well, that I don't know if that's the most important part or the part that I want to tell people. But yes, I, I mean, I, I'm very much a part of the culture and within that as well. So, yes. <laughs> OK. Um, sorry that we had to move it back. I was uh, writing some stuff last night and, you know, I, I might have overslept just a little bit. Maybe I was finally writing that diss track I said was going to come out on you. Oh, Lord. Okay. Okay. Well, I, when, like I said, whenever you're ready, man, if y'all want to bring me out of retirement, I'm looking forward to it, man. Just, you know, don't have me come out for nothing. So just make sure y'all come with it. You're going to do this thing. Make sure you do it right. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> okay. So let's hop into the important topics of the day. Um. We're going to talk about the Black Lives Matter movement first. So um, with everything that's been going on in America, obviously we had, there were uh, racist acts from cops to African-Americans before George Floyd. But I think the George Floyd one kind of put it, it was the straw that broke the camel's back, so to say. Mm -hmm. And recently we've seen a lot more activism than we have in the past. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to me kind of looking at what history will say was why the George Floyd video, why that video, why that incident of uh, police violence and murder was the thing that kind of really awakened this protest and this consciousness, not only in the United States, but around the world. I've spoken to my father and he was involved in the civil rights movement as well. And he's a much older a man um, in his 80s or approaching 80. And I'm talking to talk to other people as well. And I think, you know, what they've been saying is that right now they've seen like more diversity and kind of like unity against, um, you know, against injustice more than they had ever seen, like even in the 60s, especially a lot more young people, people across gender racial lines, sexual preferences, religious lines, people are out there in the streets 
And for my father, that really fills him with a lot of hope and encouragement and me too. But I wonder like, why George Floyd? Because yeah. even we could go back as far as, and I know Emmett Till wasn't killed by police, but what we see there is, you know, an innocent black man who's being killed by white supremacy, right? And whose yeah. body is on display for the world to see. I mean, that's the courage of Emmett Till's mother to do an open casket despite the horrific appearance of her son's body, you know, is what sent shockwaves through America. And it was one of the first times that America had really had to come face to face with just the ugly horror of white supremacy and violence. Yeah. But even in recent years, like within the past five or six years, you know, why not Trayvon Martin? You know, yeah, I mean, there have been plenty of, uh, plenty of things that have happened that haven't put African-Americans and other people over the over the curve yet where they're like okay that's it but the George Floyd one kind of put us over the edge I don't know if it was because of maybe the coronavirus was happening and we were just tired of being locked in our homes all the time I don't know yeah I, it's kind of like it was this perfect storm in 2020 that made conditions right for protests and just for I mean not even just protests what appears to be civil unrest if you look at the news now of uh, the explosive kind of, they're no longer calling it protests, but riots in Oregon and in Virginia, just over the past few days. Um, you know, what has created this civil unrest from the George Floyd thing? Because Trayvon Martin affected me deeply. Tamir Rice affected me deeply. I mean, Tamir Rice was 12 years old. You know, and even if we look even more recently than that, let's just say in 2016, I mean, the one that really, really struck a nerve with me, and it was also kind of a combination of things that had gone on in my personal life, and even me having encountered police brutality while I was overseas, you know, Philando Castile was yeah. one that really, really affected me. Because here we see, you know, a man who has a licensed weapon, but doesn't, his case doesn't get any sort of support by the NRA at all. And he's an NRA card carrier and had a licensed weapon. Um, but he was murdered in front of his wife and his infant child. Yeah. And to me, it, and, and, and he was a person that was celebrated in his home state. I mean, the children at, at the school where he fed kids, you know, they mourned him. Parents and family was like, this guy was a great upstanding citizen. We never would have imagined that anything horrific like this could happen to him in our town, in our country. Yeah. And that really affected me because it's just like, wow, at this point, any, nobody is safe. Nobody's safe. Our children's not safe. They tell us, well, don't say this to the police or don't act like this or don't look like this. Make sure it look, you know, you behave this way. And here's a man who checked off all the boxes and did everything right and still was murdered. Yeah. You know, so the George Floyd thing, I, I guess there was something about the length, the eight minutes and 46 seconds. I think there was something about the undeniable and incontrovertible truth of looking at a police officer so nonchalantly with his hands in his pocket and his knee on that man's throat, who clearly has other police officers who are serving as lookouts. It just is, you know, they say a picture is worth a thousand words and here you have a video, but it just for that whole eight minutes and 46 seconds, it captured this is truly what America is right now. This this yeah. is who we are. And this is the mockery of justice that we have to live with and that we've been living with. Some people would say since 1607, since the beginning of, of what we would call the United States. Yeah, and one thing I want to mention, especially with cops and um, when they do go to court, 
so a lot of times cops are acquitted and are innocent of what they did just because of the fact that all they have to do is say they felt their life was in danger. Right. And then by, because I took a law and safety class in uh, my ninth grade year. Mm-hmm. And so we learned that re- our teacher was very honest with us. He said, all the, a lot of the stuff that cops do to African-Americans is horrible, but they get away with it just because all they have to do is say, hey, I was in, I thought my life was in danger. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. 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 But unfortunately, that doesn't work on both ends, right? Like, it's a, there's a double standard there because you know, if there's an, if, a, if an armed black man is to stand up for his right, you know, there's, or has a license to carry concealed weapon, that doesn't work in his favor. The stand your ground law doesn't work in our favors. I mean, that was the other controversy during the Trayvon Martin thing right there in the state, state of Florida. While in the case of George Zimmerman, you know, the stand your ground law worked, there was a black woman who was protecting her home and I think fired shots in the air and they put her in jail. Now, yeah. thankfully, because of, you know, uh, once the public got a, hell, a hold of that, there was such an uproar in the media, uh, media conviction there that I think she was released eventually. But even still, for that woman to even have to deal with that when she's defending her home and firing shots in the air. And here we have a man who has no business to be following and who is harassing a 14-year-old boy, 14, 15-year-old boy. There's a double standard that's clearly, clearly at play. And I think it deals something deeper. We notice this also with Michael Brown, you know, and Ferguson. It deals with something deeper, which is the negrophobia and the persona of Black people or people of color in this country by white America, right? And and unfortunately, we are viewed, particularly as African-American men, as Black men, we are viewed as monstrous. We are viewed as larger than life. We are viewed as violent. We are viewed as threatened. Yeah, Um, weapons, basically. Right, just because, and not whether we're holding a weapon or not, our existence somehow is a threat, right, in yes. this country to, to white America. And, you know, there's that in and of itself is ironic because I think on the one hand, you know, any person in this country who is a free thinker, who is empowered to know him or herself, um, to know their purpose spiritually, and is here to speak truth to power is a threat to injustice and a threat to the establishment. And so, on in that sense, yes, I think every empowered person of color, especially African American men, you are quite dangerous to the establishment of America. Um, but on the other hand, I am not a threat to anyone just simply because my skin is black, right? Yeah. My existence does not mean that I'm a violent threat to public safety or I'm a menace to society. Um, yes. But what these murders, these police murders reveal to us and what just white supremacy throughout American history and even domestic terrorism, which has consistently been led, if not by the Ku Klux Klan, but today by just, let's just be honest, like the domestic terrorists of today is white men with AR-15s. I mean, there's no argument about that. Just look at the statistics of mass shootings and mass murders, whether it's school shootings or just mass public murders over the past three years. And the vast majority of them have been conducted yeah. by middle-aged white men with, with you know, semi-automatic rifles. Um, but somehow we are considered to be the threat in America. Yeah. That, because, that, that's strange, yeah. Because correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think with all the school shootings that I've heard of, I don't think an African-American has ever committed a school shooting. No. Correct me if I'm um, wrong on that. 
not from my recollection. I could be wrong. I don't want to state that as a matter of factly, but from my recollections, that is not that has not been the case. And in terms of the cases within public places, whether we look at the Las Vegas shooting that has happened or some of these other mass murders that have happened, even um, the floor, the Orlando massacre that happened a few years back. Yeah, none of those have been African-American men. There was the instance, I believe this was 2015 or 16, where you had, I think his name was Chris Doherty, the LA police officer who became disenchanted and also had written kind of a manifesto that had exposed longtime racism and injustice within the Los Angeles Police Department, had went on that um, killing spree, but he was specifically killing police officers, not necessarily civilians. Um, yes. But that was like, I don't know if you remember that, but that was like four years ago. But to the larger point, when we look at the numbers, by and large, you know, the domestic terrorists throughout American history has not been black people because we have not been empowered to hold weapons <laughs> for very long in this country. Um, and anytime black people are holding weapons in this country, we are quickly shot down, either literally or figuratively, politically speaking, it's quickly that image gets erased. Um, but over and over and over again, the people who have had the power to hold guns and weapons and get away with it in this country have been white men and they have been using them to conduct mass mass murders. I mean, for a very, very long time. And this is and it's not because they're white. This isn't for me to say white people are the devil or something like this. Yeah. That's not the case. But it is to show the hypocrisy and the double standard that's in play within the halls of justice and the the wrong and wicked depiction. And, 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 you know, kind of perception of black men as being violent menaces to society when the case is within America, we are the victims. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the things I also want to talk about when, because officers usually stereotype as being dangerous. Mm-hmm. And just to be on the fairness of both sides here, it's not, and it doesn't just happen to African Americans. Like my stepdad, he's six foot four. If 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 he gets pulled over by an officer, he's big and six foot four, played college football. And the officer usually thinks he's dangerous too. Right. So you, it's not just being African American. It's the fact like you might be a little big or sure. Yeah. Sure. Or the community that you lived in, you live in. But here's yeah. the here's the thing, and this has to be understood is that when you become a police officer, you have chosen to, to live by a code. It's, all, it's just yeah. like a code of chivalry or a code of Bushido for a Japanese samurai. It's a code where you say, I am not above the law. I defend the law and I'm here to protect and serve people in accordance with the law. I, and yeah, exactly. The law as it laid out in the United States is that every single person, regardless of your skin color, regardless of your creed, or your religious belief, your ethnicity, or your sexual orientation, that every single person should have due process and should be seen equally and deserves equity and dignity before the law within the United States government, um, in the boundaries of the United States itself. And so if you're a police officer and you put that uniform and that badge on, you're saying, I'm going to see each and every person individually as a person that I am called to serve, to protect, and to defend the, the law and the rights of. Yeah, exactly. So size and skin color should not matter. And, and it's just like, you know, like like we say in the South, if you're scared, say you're scared. Because if you're a police officer and you're intimidated 
by people who look bigger than you or by potentially violent and life-threatening scenarios, police, being a police officer in law enforcement is not the job for you because America in and of itself, regardless of race, is a very violent country filled with guns. Yeah. And so to be a police officer, and I have high respect for the badge and the gun, for those women and for those men who risk their lives every day to stand up for righteousness and justice and law and order in their communities, I applaud them. I don't want them to be demonized. I don't want them to be lumped in with these wicked men and women um, who are you know, acting with impunity to do all sorts of violence and to pillage and to take from their communities. So it's not an anti-police thing, but the idea also is if you are a police officer, you have to go in with that mindset and there has to be training. There has to be accountability. And those good police officers who are abhorred by or who abhor this wickedness that they're seeing happening with their with their colleagues, they need to be in a safe workspace space where they can speak out and where they can blow the whistle and where they can hold their colleagues accountable for the for those actions. And I think. Part of the problem why all police sometimes are getting stereotyped and generalized within this is that we just have not seen enough vocalization of good police officers speaking out and standing up for justice and defending and supporting not just Black Lives Matter, but supporting what is right and speaking out against those officers who are doing wrong. Maybe they feel intimidated. Maybe they feel like, hey, you don't know what the internal workings are you know, of, of what it is in policing, like we could lose our lives. You know, we could be we could be blackballed in our careers if we speak out. But we need to create a space within law enforcement in America where police officers are held accountable and where, you know, men and women who wear the badge are empowered to be able to speak out and to hold their, their colleagues um, responsible for their actions. And none of that is happening in America. None of that is happening. Yeah. And a lot of that you might, we could also trace back to the history of policing in this country, because really there was no official police office, you know, law enforcement or police offices um, across the country before the middle of the 19th century, really, the, really until the Reconstruction era. Why? Because if you lived in a village or if you lived in a township or in a county in, the, in colonial America or in early America, you know, before Reconstruction, before the end of the Civil War, you were white and you had a militia of white people policing white people. You didn't have to worry so much about immigrants. Native Americans, they were already sequestered and moved out, you know, out west and pushed to certain places, you know, and you definitely didn't have to worry about black people because they were already being policed because they were slaves. But once slavery yeah. ended and reconstruction happened and now you've got 14 million, you know, free roaming negroes, black people around now negrophobia kicks in and white people feel is the need to police and protect their community and an America that they believe was always meant solely for them. And hence you get the origin of police forcing. That's not a conspiracy theory. That's historical fact. Um, yeah. And so even much like with everything in America, the inception and the beginning of so many of these things traces back to the injustice, to, to, the, to, the, to the violence that really birthed our nation. Yeah, definitely. And one of the things also I want to add is that the way they train police officers to begin with is not very good. They only spend like nine weeks at training, and that's not going to get you prepared for the worst that could happen. Yeah, absolutely. There needs to be more extensive training. I think there also needs to be a lot more community service. If on the side of their cars, 
you know, they're you're riding around with protect and serve. Then the idea when I was a kid growing up, you know, I, I'm you know, I'll be 40 in a couple of years. I'm 38. When I was growing up, we had police officers that would visit our elementary schools. It was this whole campaign called officer friendly. Right. If you're in yeah. trouble as a young person, if you're lost as a young person, you look for a police officer. The police officer is your pal. They're your friend. You can trust them to help and to support you. Well, now, within the past six years, we've seen police officers kill young people and we've seen them kill black people with impunity. And so if you're a young black person, I think now what black people have always learned is that police officers are not the first people you go to. These aren't the people you trust necessarily, um, even though they may be present in your community. They're not there to help you. They're there to make sure you don't leave. They're there to police you, your black body and make sure that your black body stays within the parameters physically of where you're supposed to be and what you're supposed to do, right? Yeah. Um, and that is unfortunate. And I think an addition, in addition to more accountability within police officing, I think we also need, there's a couple of things, but my point with that was that I think police officers need to do community service again. I think it should be mandatory for police precincts in major cities to have to host community service events. You've got to have like a week where your job is to go to schools, to feed the hungry, to be involved, to do, um, you know, uh, town hall meetings. We need police there that are constantly giving reports. And there's just more yeah. transparency and more visibility of police officers in communities actually serving and helping people in ways that build trust and build transparency and relationships between the communities that are served and these police officers that are serving them. So it isn't just training, it's this whole lack of focus of what a police officer is supposed to be, which is a public servant who is called to really protect and to empower people to live a life of safety and jurisprudence under the law. Yeah, and so I had a theory on how we could might be able to get into the right step of fixing the police. All right, let's hear it. Right, so police, when they're in training, they get hit with everything that they have except their guns. So they get hit with the pepper spray. They they get shot by their taser, so they know how it feels. Mm -hmm. And some of this is already taking place. Yeah. So one of the things I wanted to change that might be able to help fix all this is you take away their gun mm. now the only way that they're allowed to get the gun is if somebody calls in an active shooting and they need that gun well you know in other countries especially in europe i mean this is the case right like the average law enforcement officer police officer in let's just say the united kingdom is not carrying guns they're not legally yeah. armed you know they've got batons They've got, they probably have pepper spray and mace. They've got whistles, <laughs> walkie talkies. They've got all of those things. And then once a police officer has investigated a situation, has asked for backup and things have been approved by the proper channels, then, you know, they call in SWAT teams, special tactics units, people that actually do have firearms, you know, they call in those big boys. I would love that. I love the idea of, you know, police officers, the everyday beat cop or the everyday police officer who a civilian is going to encounter not be someone who is armed to the teeth. I mean, when you look at some police officers, it's intimidating. You're white, they're wearing full body armor. They've got handcuffs, batons, mace, a taser, and a gun. It's like, are you, are you going to serve your community or are you going to Iraq? You know? Um, yeah. 
But the problem, however, with that is that America is a population of 330 million people and a lot of them have guns or can yeah. easily and quickly get access to a gun, whether that gun be legal, which is quite easy to get a legal firearm in many states. I mean, yeah. you know, you live in states in the Midwest or even some southern states, you can go to Walmart and get you a shotgun. You know, yeah. Chappelle yeah. has a very funny skit about that. Um or sketch, you know, it's it's very it's very easy, and it's also even just as easy to get an illegal gun. Yeah, um, sure. so you know, I wouldn't expect police officers, you know, to bring to bring a taser to a gunfight or to bring yeah. pawn to a gunfight. Yeah, fight. that's true. So it, before we could do that, before we could take away police officers' guns, we'd have to have a, a far more political and social conversation about gun control, which is something that country yeah. has tried and has wrestled with and has I feel like in many ways failed to really um, yeah. look honestly about the American obsession with guns yeah and uh, also with that is you'd have uh, most of them are white Americans white Republicans who would be like well they would think you're taking away their second amendment right and they would not be happy about it yeah, I mean, but here's the thing with the Second Amendment or even just with the founding fathers. I mean, when many when people really do their research and their homework into the history of early America, what you find for those enlightened, quote unquote, enlightened men or those men who were members and were influenced by the European age of reason or the Enlightenment, they believe that America was an experiment that would be ever changing. They created the Constitution to where it had enough it had enough bite to where it created a stable functional and just plan for government. But they also created a document that they believed would not only amendable, but would be flexible because they understood that America was gonna change over time. I mean, even though Thomas Jefferson owned slaves, Jefferson and many of those other Federalists understood that probably slavery was gonna be the undoing of the union. That it wasn't going to, that America wasn't going to be able to sustain itself, both economically, solely on an agrarian based society and economy, and they also realized that the divisions that it was creating both politically in terms of seats in Congress, as well as just sociologically, ideologically, religiously for America, they understood that that wasn't going to happen. Now, either those, those Africans were gonna return back to the continent of Africa from which they were stolen, or at some point those people were gonna have to be assimilated into the American population. My point is that the founding fathers created a document, created a plan of government, i.e. the constitution, that was supposed to be able to adapt and change over time with the change of American society. That's why they added the Bill of Rights, right? The First Amendments were added specifically because they wanted to make sure they enumerated and enlisted lists of civilian and citizen rights that were not explicitly stated in the text, the actual body of the Constitution itself. It's easy to say you want to support Second Amendment rights and say that that was the founding father's ideas that every American had a gun. Sure, that might have been OK when people had to hunt. There were no grocery stores and you had to hunt for your daily your daily sustenance. It's a lot easier to talk about supporting the Second Amendment back in those days when a gun only fired one bullet at a time. You know, one yeah. one bullet. And then you had to sit there and say, hold on for a second. Let me reload, pull out my powder horn and, you know, and stuff this in there. And, you know, it takes me. Yeah. four minutes to reload the thing you know that's a very different time it's a very different country culture america has changed we've seen great tragedies over and over again 
domestically in America that's been caused by guns and gun violence. Not only that, but with World War I and II, we, what we witnessed was that humanity as a whole globally was capable of killing itself with the snap of a finger. Yeah. And so our whole idea and concept about weaponry and having a lot more consciousness about how we use and distribute weapons has changed internationally. And I think America's behind the times on that. You know, we need to, yeah. we need to really think about, hey, if we have a society where everyone is armed to the teeth, are we creating a society that really is a peaceful society or a society where people can sit down and talk about their differences? I, I don't know if I feel comfortable having a conversation with someone about my differences when I know that they've got a gun on, our, on their hip or in their lap. Yeah. Yeah, I get that. And so also one of the, another thing that I do want to talk about with you is – not not only players like NFL players, NBA players, athletes, but kneeling for the anthem. Mm. So, a a lot of my friends don't know my views on the anthem. I think my parents do, but I think that's about it. Right. So my view on like kneeling for the anthem, I fully support it. And one of the things about why I support it is this country is freedom of religion. Mm-hmm. So. One of the, if you look at the Star Spangled Banner, it's it's a lot more than the part we just sang. Right. And so I looked it up, and so th- this line is in there, and the other part of it it says, "Then conquer we must when our cause is just, and this be our motto, and God is our trust." Well, if you're not a Christian here, and that lives in America, and this is all about God then why are you kneeling for the anthem? There's very much that freedom. I think that's that's a part of it too. I mean, people have also questioned Francis Scott, Scott Key's other lyrics in there where I think he talks something about slavery as well. Um, yes. I'm not super familiar with, you know, the OG version of the Star Spangled Banner, but I think essentially those protests of kneeling, you know, are not about the flag, they're not about the military. They're not even necessarily a pol- directly a political statement against Trump, though I think, again, with most NBA, NFL players, most major league sports players in the United States are people of color. Most of them, let's just be honest, are black men, especially in the NFL. There would be yeah. no professional football or black basketball if there weren't black men. It's just the reality yeah. of it. Um, but... And so there is an association of how those of how we as black men may view, view this country and, of course, how the majority of us view Trump. But what the kneeling was really about was to say, I am a black man who is in a position of power. I have a platform. All of yeah. America is watching me. These white people who are watching me on Sunday afternoon would not spit on me if I was on fire. Monday through Saturday, or if I didn't have this uniform on. But right now, they're watching. This is my chance to use this platform to raise awareness about why my life matters and why my community matters and why we hurt and why we are suffering right now. So if healing, yeah. and that's all it is, it's not like they were had signs, it's not like yeah, they were making crazy statements. These men were kneeling. Tim Tebow kneeled all the time. Every time he would get a first down or a touchdown, he would kneel in prayer. Some people found that controversial, but we certainly did not see an, a whole eruption of white America go crazy 
about that. Yeah. So if he can kneel for what he believes is right, then why can't you know these these NFL players, these black players, kneel for what they believe is right? Most, yeah, most why can't they protest police brutality? Exactly, which is what the kneeling was about. And most veterans and most military officers said, "I'm not offended by them kneeling. That's actually what America is about." And it's not like yeah. they've ever said anything anti, you know, against the military. So I don't think that veterans or you know people who are in the military feel offended by that at all. They they understand the place of patriotism because they paid the ultimate sacrifice for that. So for them, kneeling is a part of what a civilian a civilian does to put their life and their voice on the line. You know, everybody's yeah. not going to be able to take up guns to be a soldier to fight to defend their nation. And not all of us should. And we can question whether or not war is just and ever should be taken, you know, whether we should ever embark on that ever at all. I, as a Christian, yeah. don't think that we should. But not everybody can be a soldier on the front lines with a gun. But every it is incumbent upon every American to speak up and to speak out for righteousness and for justice. And especially if America wants to, you know, believe this myth or tout this myth that we're a Christian nation, Proverbs 31 verse nine makes it very clear that we are supposed to speak up and speak out for righteousness and justice. So to kneel, yeah. to kneel I think is totally within these, these men's rights. It's totally appropriate and it is not an anti-American sentiment at all. It is actually very, very much what America is about. Yeah. And you brought up war for a second, and I know this wasn't on our talking points, but oh, do you remember what Waco was? Don't you're gonna get me in trouble? Uh, yes, I remember Waco. I was I was around. I was maybe I was maybe fourteen, fifteen when Waco happened. But yes, I remember Waco. Okay, so you talked about war, and obviously at Waco they used tear gas, which was if it was against another country, it would be a war crime. Mm -hmm. The CIA definitely to... dropped the ball. The CIA horribly dropped the ball and cost the lives of dozens of civilians in that Waco incident. Totally. Totally. Yeah, so I just think it's weird that we would use that on our own American citizens who they may not have the right view that me and you have, but they have a view and they were, they were American citizens and this country's freedom of religion. Well, I mean, you, you're not supposed, I, I think it's ridiculous that we use a robot to kill, they say, you know, there was a black man in Dallas, if you remember, this was a couple of years ago, a few years ago, right after Ferguson happened, you know, they said that a black man had killed police officers in Dallas, Texas, they said they had him trapped within that building and they sent in a robot to kill the man, right? Uh, yeah. That also seems cowardly and inappropriate to me, we sending robots in to kill people, that's you know, and again, if you want to believe that, I, I, I'm not sure. I don't I don't believe all of the things and the details that we've been that have been revealed about that or released about that. Um, but America is not a country that is above using terroristic tactics uh, upon anyone who it deems to be a threat. And, you know, when we look at an America from kind of um, a critical theory of uh, conflict theory and understanding that there are these, you know, there's this white supremacist element in America that has been a part of it since its core, since its inception, its foundation. Anything that this white supremacist empire deems a threat, it will use very much a Roman 
slash and burn tactic to defend itself. We did, yeah, and it's we did it against you know prisoners we had in Guantanamo Bay, and you know, and uh, during Iraq we had um, those prison camps where those horrible things that soldiers were doing to those Muslim prisoners, and uh, I think it was Abu Ghraib. We had that, you know, they're waterboarding people. You know, they sprayed fire hoses, sick dogs, and, and beat up, you know, women and children and, and college students during the civil rights movement. We've seen it yeah. on camera. So America has never been above using these tactics. The American government tested the effects of syphilis on 600 black men during the Tuskegee experiment, the black bad blood. Yeah. So America, to me, has always done these things. To me, America is just as evil, quote unquote, of an empire as any other empire that has ever existed. How do empires sustain their power? Through absolute barbaric savagery. You tear down and you destroy any threat to the empire. That's what Rome did. America is just a new Rome. Yeah. And so you talked about civil rights there. And I know you wanted to talk about um, John Lewis died. I know you wanted to talk about that. So... You are free. I just think that it's important that, you know, this generation of people, regardless of their race or regardless of where you're from here in the United States, to really be able to look back at the heroism, the courage, the spiritual depth and the nonviolent emphasis of the civil rights movement and other freedom fighters um, in early American history. Um, it's a shame because with the death of Representative John Lewis, who was personally important to me, both because I'm a Georgian, I grew up most of my life living in his district. Um, I've also had the pleasure of meeting John Lewis a couple of times as a young man, both in the state capitol, in our nation's capital. I also, you know, was on a tour, a uh, singing tour with a chorus, a youth chorus that I was in, um, 14, 15 years old. He hosted us there at the Capitol in Washington, D.C. We actually had the chance to perform and sing for him on the Capitol. So John Lewis, for me, I have a bunch of personal points of connection. He, along with um, Reverend C.T. Vivian, who was also a pioneer and a, a man who Dr. King said was the greatest preacher he had ever heard. Both of them were famous within Atlanta. Both of them went to jail together for the cause in the 60s and then yeah. died on the same day. So these men's lives were always interlinked. But what both of them understood was that despite the intense um, horrors, you know, just violence, humiliation that they endured when standing up for righteousness and for justice, they never once, it never once welled up in them to retaliate, to, to go to violence, to debase themselves by using the tactics of the wicked or the oppressor. Um, yeah. They understood that the only way they could win was by the sheer power of soul force and love. And what I what discourages me, even though I'm very optimistic, like my father, when I see the diversity uh, of people out there who are fighting for justice, what does concern me is that in this current climate of America with cancer culture, cancel culture and how we are so sensitive and so you know, outraged immediately about any and everything and how we can't just sit down and disagree with people and have conversations with people about our differences or about, you know, the, the differences of opinion. It worries me that that what we might think is justice will turn into mob vengeance and violence. We're seeing that happen now. 
And I'm not saying that it isn't justified to a certain extent. People are upset and they're fed up with decades and decades yeah. and decades of violence and brutality and injustice that has gone unanswered and unaccounted for. Um, yeah. But for us to dissolve or devolve into mob vengeance to where we're destroying our own communities, we're destroying any businesses, especially local and privately owned businesses, you know, where we're killing each other and fighting in the streets. One, especially for us as African-Americans, we will never win that way. We are only 14% if that of 13% of the population. We will never, we don't have or control the means productions of any weapons. We don't even totally control our own economic destiny. So there is no way we would ever win a full scale frontal attack or war, you know, race war, so to speak. Um, And I also don't think that the movement for justice will be able to survive against an empire that is willing to do tear gas, torture and any other thing to defend itself. The only thing that is going to crush the face of an evil empire is love. It will only be that. It will only be that. And so I think honoring and learning about the legacy of men and women like Dorothy Day, John Lewis, C.T. Vivian, Dr. King, Gandhi, even the young Malala Yousafzai. When we're looking at men and women of courage like these people, Nelson Mandela, we're, we're learning the best of what humans can be and how yeah. we are supposed to fight for freedom and justice. That's why these people's legacies were successful and were solidified in their efforts. And I just want more young people to know that because unfortunately, well, like I said, with the death of John Lewis and C.T. Vivian, the only two civil rights leaders that are still alive right now is Andrew Young, who's also, you know, a big time Atlanta. He was a former mayor of, this, of Atlanta. He's also a U.N. ambassador. Um, is Andrew Young and Jesse Jackson. Yeah. And those two guys are both also in their 80s. So yeah. we can't trust the system to put these heroes' names in the book. They're not going to put the revolutionaries' names in the textbook. They're not going to teach these kids that. And so yeah. we have to make sure that we are bringing up their names, telling their stories, talking about these people to our children, educating folks formally in schools about them, awakening our consciousness to the power of soul force and love and nonviolent resistance as a means to fight against injustice. Otherwise, if we just devolve into solely allowing our anger and our emotions to guide us, we're, we're gonna lose this thing. We're gonna lose time yeah. opportunity to actually change the world, which I think, we're, yeah. I'm quite hopeful. I really do believe that we're standing on the precipice of great change. It's, it's, it's a valley of decision sort of time for America right now. And literally 2020 is that focal, you know, with the pandemic, with, with Black Justice Movement and with the election coming up, it is that perfect combination of opportunity for us to make a decision about who we want to be. Yeah. And how we respond demonstrates who we are. Yeah. I, I completely understand that. And I hope that our audience understands that too. Yeah. So, um, Another thing, since you brought up the election, obviously, well, the people, the person that we support here on this podcast as a joke is presidential candidate Kanye West. <laughs> I hope you're joking. You're not going to get me to endorse Kanye West. I just want to say that clearly. But 
Well, you don't have to endorse him. We're just going to talk about his music. Okay. okay? <laughs> Very good. That's safe. I can do that. I can do that. Um, so he was supposed to release an album yesterday or whatever. Um, he did not because Taylor Swift decided to release an album this week. So he's just not going to release an album. Oh, is that why? But, right, okay. but um, his album before that was uh, the one that was all about God, where I thought King? it was a good album. This is King, King is not a terrible King. album. It is not a terrible album. Yeah, it's not terrible. <laughs> um, personally, what was your favorite song on that uh, album? God is. Just because I grew up listening, or I wasn't listening, but I grew up hearing Reverend James Cleveland, who was kind of considered the godfather of gospel, and Aretha Franklin, and Shirley Caesar, and my grandmother playing those records um, on the weekends. And so that sample that he used there really resonated with me because I remember that. So that sample is awesome. And, and God is, I think, lyrically, it's Kanye's testimony. It really is him sharing what Jesus means to him and what Jesus is doing in his life. And I think when, what, but see, the thing is, is that Kanye has always struck me as a man of faith, of Christian faith, even going all the way back to college dropout. You know, when we look at, you know, Jesus walks and a lot of the things that he's expressed, even all the way up to my dark, my beautiful dark twisted fantasy, he's been expressing this inner struggle that he's dealt with, with his ego and his insecurity and his pride, the allure and temptation and addictions to sex and fame and money. And also this, this influence and this kind of input of, you know, being a black man who actually was born in Atlanta. A lot of people don't know that about Kanye because of course he repped Chicago. He, I think moved there when he was like three or four. Um, but, you know, he's from Atlanta. So the black church, the gospel, that's in him. You know, Christianity is a part of him. I think even Kanye's dad, even though they have an estranged relationship, I could be wrong. I think his dad is a minister. Um, so I've always heard, I've always heard, um, you know, Christ in Kanye's lyrics and in his story and in his struggle, even when, you know, sometimes some of his antics or sometimes you know, some of his actions haven't always looked Christian, I've been able to perceive that struggle with him. So I think it's good to, to hear him finally being able to take a stand and say, I'm embracing this part of who I am fully, and I'm, I'm trying to mature and move past some of these other tendencies. The sad and yeah. unfortunate thing about Kanye West is that I really do think mentally there's some, there's some illness and some issues there that, you know, for all of the anointing and power that God through Christ offers us, you know, that is not a substitute for therapy. I think God gives us therapy. He gives us counseling through the wisdom and the input that he puts into wise people around us and even trained medical, you know, psychologists and therapists who can help us with that. And I think Kanye, as he's been a little bit more open about his mental illness, needs to also take a lot more responsibility for handling that. And I just don't, yeah. he just doesn't seem healthy to me. Yeah. And one, one other thing about Kanye is that some people would call him, I don't know if petty is the right word, but I would call it annoying. Hmm. Just the fact, like, he's supposed to release an album, but Taylor Swift does it, so he doesn't release his. And then on the Lift Yourself song that he had a couple years ago, hmm. or two years ago, I guess, where he all he said was poopity scoop, scoopity boop. <laughs> yes. 
and yeah. he, and he only did that because Drake wanted the instrumental to that, and he didn't want to give it to him. Yes, well, the two of them kind of have a long-standing beef, um, and it's I think the beef is more of a love-hate relationship than it is like this pure hatred sort of relationship. Yeah. Um, I think they both really respect each other. I think. You know, Kanye sees Drake as the little homie who can, who should kind of know his place, but who, you know, has quickly surpassed Kanye in terms of fame, and, at least in, within musical popularity or whatever, and probably a little bit also within money. I mean, he's probably got more hits within, I mean, Drake, I was just telling my friend this before we, you and I began to talk. I think Drake is only five hits away from probably having more number ones and being probably the highest selling, not just rapper, but maybe American pop star of all time. He he can't be that far behind a Michael Jackson, Madonna, Beatles, or Rihanna. I mean, he's got hits after hits after hits after hits. I think that hurts, yeah. I think that hurt that irks. It doesn't hurt, but I think it irks Kanye. Um, because Kanye throughout his entire life has really struggled to be accepted. He struggled with accepting himself and liking himself. I know for someone who also has struggled with insecurity and depression, I can identify that in someone else. And I think that's always been a part of, of Kanye's issue. Um, is that insecurity? I think he blames himself a little bit from his, for his mother's death. He never really has resolved that fully. Um, and so I think his thing with Drake is, man, for you, it seems like it's been really easy and you and you gained so much from me. You gained so much freedom to be able to dress this way or have this other persona that's not like street and hood or to be able to sing on tracks or to like you, you you're standing on my shoulders and yet you're able to reach for stars that I never was able to reach. I think yeah. that bothers Kanye a little bit. Yeah. So, since we're on the topic of music as well, you, you talked about uh, Kanye's album, or we talked about Kanye's album, but, so one of my favorite artists, his last album was pretty bad, and ever <laughs> since his album released, uh, it, the world's been going downhill. What went wrong for Chance the Rapper's Big Day album? Yeah, Scott? So, yeah, a friend of mine was just, so we were talking about corny rappers, right? Like, and how do we define that? Because we were talking about Logic, right? Logic has just released an album last Friday, which people are saying is actually probably some of his best work, if not his best work. It's the Logic that we, I think that people who like him have always been waiting for him to evolve into. Um, but to me, the problem isn't that Logic can't rap. He raps fine. I just think for a lot of hip hop purists, and just for a lot, to be honest, for a lot of black men over a certain age, we just find him and his story and his persona to be corny. We just don't identify yeah. with him. But it isn't that he is not talented, right? Let's take another artist like Drake. Drake is super, super, super talented. And even though he's taken some L's, and even though he'll say some things like, you know, if someone hit your block up, I tell you, Drake, you ain't no shooter. You didn't grow up in no hood. Your street cred is not solidified. Sure, we believe we've yeah. got enough money and connections now to where people who live and are about that life, you're connected to them. You can hire some guns and some goons, but we know you not. You don't have no stripes. You're not certified, but you can get away with talking this, or you can take L's, like what Pusha T handed him a couple of years ago with that picture of him in blackface, or even just kind of, you know, revealing what Drake was hiding about his his baby mom and his son, right? So 
Yeah. But Drake can take these L's and overcome them because his talent is really large. So he's different from Logic. And then there's Chance the Rapper, who I think Chance the Rapper is not is neither corny, nor is he this person who's taking L's. Chance the Rapper is something that I call, I define his issue as self-sabotage. Because people who were familiar with Chance the Rapper, when he dropped 10 Day, and then he dropped Acid Rap, we were like, we've never heard anything like this. His story is, is, is unique. His voice is unique. He's from Chicago. We want to hear more Chicago voices, especially, you know, during that time when, you know, the whole idea of Chirac and hearing about the hundreds and hundreds of young Blacks that were dying and killing each other there that seemed like on a weekly basis. Um, to hear a voice like Chance the Rapper, who was kind of coming from that, living in that, reflecting on that, but giving us something that was different from Chief Keith and kind of like the drill movement, it it was refreshing. Even when yeah. he began, even when he fully began to convert and express his Christianity in coloring book, we liked it because the music was good and we wanted to see his trajectory grow and increase. We wanted to see him as a, where, where else can you go and take us lyrically and conceptually as an artist? But then he started to do the Backstreet Boy commercials. He started to do Kit Kat, Doritos commercials. He's, you're on Jimmy Fallon smiling and kind of what seems like sucking and jiving. It seemed like every other week. Um, you take Mad Long to give us, you know, what's supposed to be your big studio debut. And then when we get it, it doesn't sound familiar like anything that we want to hear from you. It doesn't connect back to those first three projects that we fell in love with. We get that you're a happy father and a happy parent, but the way you go about celebrating and demonstrating that sounds really cheesy. It just doesn't connect. And we wonder, not necessarily did you sell out, but did you see when you got to that position in that place, in those, in those rooms and in those spaces and, and kind of was in there, did a part of you lose yourself? Did you lose yeah. yourself? And, and I think that's what's really disappointing with Chance the Rapper because, I, and I don't want to say that like it's over for him, but unless he can kind of get back in touch with what made us love him in the first place, I, I couldn't see his, I could not see his career doing what it was doing back in 2014, 15, when he released Color and Blue. I mean, that was just, or 2016, whenever that was, like it was, we just thought Chance the Rapper was it. He was the, he was the, he was the next guy. It was, it was looking yeah. like even over J. Cole, like it was looking like Chance the Rapper might, jump the shark and be up there with Kendrick. He could surpass Kendrick because he had more commercial crossover appeal. Like we just really thought he was gonna do it. And I just feel like he's, he shot himself in the foot. Even with him continuing to stand by Kanye West, despite Kanye's antics and bonehead statements, I just is kind of like, yeah. Chance, where, what's grounding you? Where's the ground for you? We just don't feel like Chance is grounded in anything that resonates and relates with, with the rest of us. Yeah, and see, like, one of my favorite is not Chance's song, but Chance's on the song. It's the song he did with uh, Gambino, mm -hmm. The Worst Guys. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought that was very good. Man, Chance can get busy and get really nasty. He dropped a couple of Lucy's. Maybe that, I can't remember if that was last year or the year before. He dropped a couple of Lucy's when he was talking real greasy, man. Like, he was, he was, he was get going in, and I was like, man, we want this Chance. Like, let's get this. Like, we want Jesus Chance. We want that. You can give us that. 
but also give us a little bit, give us, let, you know, let us know you still from Chicago. Like you can still be greasy a little bit. Like this is hip hop. We want that, that, that gamut yeah. of expressions and feelings that come from black youth. Um, and we just, we didn't really get that with the big day. There are a couple of songs on there that I think are, that are, that are good. Um, and people really, really dumped on the album, I think harder than it deserved, but it, it is not a good album. Even the cover is super lazy. The cover is terrible. Like when yeah. this was one of the worst album covers I've seen since What a Time to Be Alive. It's horrible. <laughs> yeah. So we were you were talking about corny rappers. So do you know who um Super Duper Kyle is? <laughs> no, I no, I don't. Oh, you don't okay. Well, you might know one of his songs. He made the I Spy song. I'm not familiar. I'm not familiar. Okay, well, 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 basically, his target for music is, like, middle schoolers and high schoolers, I guess. Okay. So, I, I would put him in the corny rap section, too. And his voice is, his voice is strange, too. It's not, I think you might have let me hear one of his songs. Is he the one that kind of sounds like he's on helium, like he just sucked a bunch of helium, and it's very almost yes. okay. Okay, so yes, I think I did hear that one song, and the song is only like it's barely two minutes long. That one song that I think you let me hear, but yes, I think I've heard that song. Yeah, yeah. So I would put him in the definition of corny rappers, along with my homie Nick Cannon too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, and so here's the thing: even with Nick Cannon, Nick Cannon is a corny rapper, right? And I think it's not necessarily that the culture thinks that Nick Cannon is corny. It's just that you're not that great of a rapper. And two, you don't ever really, you don't have anything to say, nor do you have anything that we want to hear you say. So it always felt like Nick Cannon trying to rap, it never felt authentic or genuine. It was never anything we could take seriously. And I think sometimes that may have frustrated him, but I think he also learned to just have a sense of humor about himself and say, well, look, if y'all are never going to accept me as a rapper, or do this, but I still want to rap, I'm going to do it, and I'm just going to embrace being the cornball. I mean, didn't he even have a song maybe seven years ago called I'm Whack, which I think... Yes, but that was before he went really hard into the battle rapper stuff and decided when Eminem pulled him out of the closet, he decided he was going to try to be hard for a little bit. Yeah, yeah, I think Nick Cannon gets a, I have a lot of respect for Nick Cannon in terms of what he's been able to do as a talk show host and as like a media mogul. I mean, to see a young black man who's, who, you know, is on primetime television on network TV, that's a big deal. And you hosting these huge shows, you got two, you got two or three shows. You got American, America's Got Talent. Uh, was he doing another show on network television? I know he had Wild and Out. He had like one other show he was hosting. And plus he had oh, the mass singer. The mass singer, that's right. Pa podcast, you know, doing our way. He was married to Mariah Carey. I'm sure he got some of that money too. Um, you know, I mean, him as an entertainer, I don't think anybody found to be corny. And from what they say on the inside of the industry is that Nick Cannon does quite well and is quite popular with people and with with women. Like he's not no corny dude. He's actually a pretty smooth guy. And he is highly intelligent. Um I just think as a rapper, Nick Cannon, just we just never found that to be authentic or take him seriously. Just never. And that was always the thing that turned me off from him. It was like, why do you keep trying so hard to do this thing that it's obvious you don't do super well and no one's going to receive you as? But you've got all this other talent over here, so why don't you just do that 
and be okay with that. Yeah. Yeah. And one other thing, like, when he decided that he was going to go battle Eminem, and in one of his songs, he took a shot at 50 Cent. Mm -hmm. Now, personally, I don't like Eminem or 50 Cent. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Eminem, I have my reasons for that, because he said, you know, black girls are dumb. Right. What he said years ago. But 50 Cent, I just don't like, because I feel like his music is in the realm of it's kind of the same. I know what he's going to rap about. I Look, don't get me started on 50 Cent. People who knows me, my best friend was hearing this conversation. He, he'd roll his eyes and say, oh, Lord, you done grind yours. So I've never been a 50 Cent fan. I think 50 Cent is one of the most overrated rappers of all time. New Yorkers cannot be objective about him. I, I think, you know, 50 Cent has sold everything but good music. The man only has one good album that some people consider classic. And he's never, so as a rapper, as a musician, I've never liked him or taken him seriously. You had to run and go get Dre and Eminem to produce you and kind of boost up your your show, your celebrity power. I just, I I just, yeah, exactly. I, I found him to be a very blase rapper. I ain't taking anything away from him as a person. I don't know that man from a can of paint. You know, he could be a great guy. Surely he's got business acumen. He's moved into like the multimedia mogul sort of thing now where he's producing television shows like Power and uh, was it For Life? Um, yeah. You know, he's he, he's he's got some ability there. He's got a lot of sense. I just don't like him musically. I agree with you. As a rapper, I find him to be highly overrated. But you were talking yeah, about like, Nick Cannon. Yeah, like none of his bars have value to me. Like, mm-hmm. like one, one thing he said about Nick Cannon's uh, album that he was reviewing or whatever. He said nobody ever listens to a Nick Cannon song and says oh bars, but I mean I've never said that to a fifty cent song either. Right. Then what fifty cent quote, what song from what song are people gonna quote from fifty, you know, for the rest like, you know what I'm saying, bars that just people gonna put on t shirts and just remember for forever. You ain't never dropped no jewels or gems or stuff like that. This is highly quote what we're gonna quote, oh is Ghost Shouty it's your birthday? Like is that your yeah, great quote. Like, and you didn't even come up with that. That's the Southern, that's stuff we were saying on the radio here in the South for forever since the 90s. You didn't even come up with that. People in New York didn't yeah. create the word shouted. That's that's Southern slang. So what are you talking about? Yeah. You know, so. Yeah, de- definitely. I, I, and most of the time I go off, I go off on Eminem and 50 Cent on my podcast and my mom gets tired of listening to me talk about it. <laughs> And so when I was recently back in Augusta, I would, my mom asked me this question. She said, what five celebrities would you, would you have on your podcast? And I named like all these B-list celebrities. And my mom's like, why wouldn't you like interview some A-list celebrities? Because <laughs> yeah. I, um, I picked Mario, okay. who was like in the R&B stuff. If you know who that is, I, do, I know who Mario is. Give me—I'm waiting for your five. This is a good topic right here. I think we still tell me. What give give the audience? What's your five celebrity interviews, doll? Okay, Nick Cannon. Uh huh. Um, uh, Mario. Mm-hmm. Um, Amarion from B2K. Okay. Uh, then I'd probably have to go Antonio Brown because we always have a segment on here about <laughs> Antonio Brown. Okay. What else you got? And then my last one. Uh, You're doing it right now with to... Senator Scott right here. Well, 
Yeah, that one too. <laughs> but um, Dennis Rodman. Mm, now that's a good one. I would tune in for that. I would tune in for that. Yeah, because I mean, then I think Dennis Rodman, after watching The Last Dance, mm-hmm. the documentary, I have a lot more respect for Dennis Rodman than I had before, just because I didn't know all that stuff about him. Right. 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 Yeah, I mean, yeah, he's definitely so I think- an intriguing person. You want to kind of pick his brain. You want to know what he's gone through. Yeah, there's just, yeah, there's a lot there happening in him that you that you kind of want to know. He's one of those people, so like, you know, a person that's pretty high up in my top five celebrity, even just kind of want to meet you and have a conversation, is Mike Tyson. And I feel like Tyson yeah. is one of those controversial athletes athletic figures or athletic celebrities like a Dennis Rodman where either you love him or you hate him. Either you think, you know, the guy is somewhat brilliant and thinking on another level or you think the man's a savage, right? And for me, Mike Tyson has always just been this really intriguing figure who we can tell is a very complex person. By no means is he perfect, right? And is capable of, you know, some, some acts of I guess, for lack of a better word, seems like barbarism to the average person, right? Um, But there's also this backstory and this sensitivity to him where you realize, like, he's gone through a lot and he's overcome it and he's and he's and he keeps reinventing himself. Um, And there's a level of entombment that he has about himself. So, yeah, I can I can I can see people being intrigued with Dennis Rodman. And like, that's how I feel about Mike Tyson, for sure. So you're a Mike Tyson fan then, right? Oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah. I I don't know what. Oh okay. okay. I don't know what Roy is smoking. I don't know what. I don't know. He should not take this fight. He should not. Bro, no, no, no. Don't disrespect Roy like that. Roy's Captain Hook out here. No disrespect to Roy. He, I mean, and you look at their records on paper. It looks perfect. They're in the same age. Both of them have some of the hardest punches ever. They both. You know, Roy Jones is also very quick. There's a level of of respectability there that was like, okay, this fight makes sense. And yet, I I personally just think anyone is insane to be in the ring with Mike Tyson. I mean, even when you look at videos of Mike Tyson training, it just looks like I don't want to be that guy holding the punching bag. You know what I'm saying? Because if that other thing kicks in with Mike where it, you know, some people call it killer instinct. If that kicks in with him, how do you get him to stop? Like, how do you, you get knocked out? You, you, I mean, but getting knocked out by Mike Tyson might mean that you don't wake up again. Like, this is Mike Tyson now. I mean, he had, I think he's on record as having the hardest punch ever. Okay. Okay. So obviously you have Mike Tyson winning. Right? Yes, very much so. Yes. Okay, I got, I got, I got my boy Roy winning. Okay, listen, here's my thing on Roy. Okay, Roy, in my opinion, had the greatest prime of any boxer of all time. Mm-hmm. He went five plus years without losing a round of boxing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's that's a big stat. That's a big stat. And so, now if you look at, so he's not obviously the greatest boxer of all time. But I watched a documentary on it, and scientifically, he's he has the best attributes of any boxer. Okay. Now he's definitely not the greatest fighter of all time. I, I'd take Muhammad Ali over him. Right. Right. <laughs> but, and his last fight was 2018. Mike Tyson's fight last fight was 2005. Right. Right. 
so I got Roy winning. Now, if he doesn't get knocked out within the first two rounds, he definitely wins. I think that that's, that's the trick, right? The idea is, can Roy survive two rounds? Because I think Mike Tyson's MO has always been, I'm trying to knock you out within two minutes. Really less than that. I, I'm trying to knock you out in 30 seconds, really. Um, yeah. So if, if Roy survives... We wonder. I mean, Mike's body still looks amazing. You know, he looks like he's in great shape. Um, and so I wonder, but we also, we know that Mike has been through a lot too, right? In terms of health and just even in terms of drugs and drinking and some of that other stuff. So you wonder what toll that has taken on his body um, and his stamina, like his overall just endurance. Um, yeah. But we, we shall see, because what they're saying is that that fight is coming very soon. Yeah, and the only thing that scares me, or is it going to be like I know it's an exhibition match, so no big leagues or conferences are a part of it, which I love to see that because that's better for the boxers, everybody get their money. But is it going to be like a pay per view thing, or are they going to put that on YouTube? Is it just going to be it's out there, everybody can watch it? How they going to do that? It should be a pay per view. Oh, okay, okay, all right. Because I know they're going to have YouTubers fighting on the undercard. Okay, got it, got it, got it, got it. I know. But what, I mean, the only thing that scares me for Roy is that late in his career, his his iron chin took a dive, and he has the most unorthodox or orthodox style of fighting ever, where he doesn't really have his hands up whatsoever. He just goes around. <laughs> he just kind of walks around the ring. Yeah. Yeah, like he'll put his hands behind his back and pretend he's handcuffed and stuff. Yeah, all that pretty dancing and all that stuff sounds good, but uh, I, I don't know if that's going to work with my guys. Well, you better put the uh, Well, the, supposedly they're supposed to be wearing head guards, so maybe he'll do it. <laughs> it's just going to be really interesting. It's going to be really interesting. I'm excited to see Mike Tyson in the ring again. Uh, I think Roy Jones usually is no lightweight. I think he's going to look good, too. It's going to be a fun fight. It's going to be a really fun fight. And I think we haven't seen any boxing matches in a long time that have gotten us excited in terms of these sort of big name heavyweight fights. So it's going to be a good one. It's going to be a good one. Yeah, definitely. Um, so we still have a lot of more topics to cover. So do you want this to be the end of part one? And we can do part two whenever you have time. Sure. Let's and we'll come back and we can talk about defund and police reform, which we kind of touched on that. But we can kind of go a little bit further. I think we'll know a little bit more about the NBA restart and jerseys and the bubble and the trouble of people leaving the bubble, the, the trouble in the bubble. If you ask Lou, yeah. Lou Williams, um, we still need to discuss other music like J. Cole and Little Baby and. There's a lot out there. Yeah. There's a lot to talk about. And we never really got to, we touched on Nick Cannon, but we never really got to the meat of Nick Cannon's most recent, uh, <laughs> you know, his most recent. Yeah. Yeah, I got you. Um, so thank you for being on the podcast for part one. It's my pleasure. Uh, thank you for having me. Part two. Yeah, man, we're going to continue this conversation. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it.